Go anywhere in the world and you will find a dumpling. And that is loosely defined as a sweet or savory morsel encased in dough and then steamed, fried, or baked. You're probably imagining your favorite dumpling right now. But does that picture change when we talk about dumplings from Asian or European cuisines? As We Eat is embarking in a three-part series exploring dumplings. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim, how are you? I am doing really well. But how are you doing? We're doing pretty good. As you know, we had an event happen to us about two weeks ago, which changed our lives. We were on our way back from visiting family in Washington, and we were hit in the van, and the van is totaled. So <sighs> our house is no more. All parties involved did walk away, which is a good thing. That doesn't mean that there aren't injuries that will pop up in the future. And the fact that we're kind of homeless right now yeah. is kind of weird. My heart is really breaking for you and Eric and Josie because I know how much your home meant to you, that you had so much time invested in making this mm. a reality and to have that gone just in a blink of an eye. So, you know, my heart goes out to you. And we've told our As We Eat family a little bit about it. So that's what's going on. We've always been pretty blunt about the things happening in our lives. And the reality is that we do have a reality that happens outside of the podcast episodes. True. So true. Yeah. My heart's totally with you guys. And I'm hopeful for what will happen for you in the future. I know that remains to be seen. But at any rate, as we is going to continue, that's obviously something that we can keep doing. Absolutely. We will continue. We'll figure things out. It's just a little bit different right now. Yeah. Yeah. So back to the topic at hand, which is dumplings, we would like to thank listener Jane Bonacci for the suggestion to take a deeper look into all things dumplings. And I think this is going to be a super delicious journey into pillowy stuffed goodness. Indeed. They're one of my favorite foods. I was thrilled when I saw the suggestion. So what we have planned for everybody is it always had to be more than one episode. There was no way we could uncover the entirety of dumplings, the different varieties from around the world, what they can mean to human beings, both as cuisine and also just that they're what they represent in one episode. So we're really excited to be taking this in three parts. Today, we're going to talk about dumplings from Asia. When we say that, we're typically talking about China, Japan, Korea, Thailand, Vietnam, etc. But that's going to be our focus today. So, Leigh, what do you have for me about dumplings and their history? Oh, my gosh. So, you know, like so many of the dishes that we have researched and discussed, the origins of dumplings is rather 
obtuse. There are legends and food lore that abound. But what I thought was particularly interesting is that there is a common theory that rather than there being one incident that spawned iterations of dumplings across cultures and cuisines, that these stuffed pillows of dough actually happened concurrently, Hmm. which probably makes some sense when you think about it. In our last episode, we talked about dough, specifically how dough led to the domestication of grains, which allowed people to settle down in a specific area. And if this concept seems a little counterintuitive, that dough spawned the domestication of grains rather than the opposite, jump over to episode 47, where Kim and I discuss the discovery that puts this into a little bit more perspective. Now, we have this dough, which likely did originate in an area and spread throughout cultures, but it provides this canvas that is really endless. It can be leavened, unleavened, you can laminate it, you can make short dough. And every one of these versions of dough can be filled. You have raviolis in Italy, pierogies in Eastern Europe, empanadas in South America, tamales in Central America. And I think that one of the dumplings that's really familiar to a lot of us is gyoza, or the dumplings that are served during Chinese New Year's. These dumplings are filled with symbolism. They're said to be the same shape as golden ingots of ancient China, representing prosperity, good health, and well-being. But there is a legend that speaks to compassion, community, and gratitude. Now, the legend says that the Chinese physician Zheng Zhongxing, or the medicine saint, after leaving his position as a government official to practice medicine in his hometown, returned to witness the devastation that poverty had dealt to many of the citizens. They weren't able to feed their families. They couldn't provide warm clothing for the upcoming winter months. And they were plagued with frostbite, especially on their ears. Now, the good doctor quickly set up a medicine stand. He filled pots with meat, vegetables, and medicinal herbs and spices. He boiled all of these together. Then he chopped all of the ingredients up filled rounds of dough with the mixture, crimped the edges together, and then served two dumplings along with a broth to his fellow citizens. The resulting dish resembled ears. And I have to wonder if this resemblance was a bit like the doctrine of signatures, which suggests that ingredients or finished dishes that look like or represent a body part will cure whatever ails that body part. But I think more than that, Zhang Zhengxing understood the ingredients that he employed would help with circulation and warming, as well as nourishing his malnourished compatriots. Now, his soup was called fragile ear soup that eliminates the cold. And it's said that our good doctor served this soup through the winter until the first day of New Year's, when all of the recipients of the soup had been healed. Now, to show their gratitude to what the doctor had done, the locals made food that resembled ears and served them during winter solstice and New Year's celebration. So that's where we get these dumplings, and that's the reason that they're served during this time of year. The first recipe for dumplings appears in a cookery book by Apicius, and we've talked about him in several other episodes, and I know that I have mispronounced his name in those episodes, so I'm really sorry for that, but I am fixing it. One of the recipes is dumplings of pheasant. You take fresh pheasants, cut them and dice them, mix them with a stiff force meat that's made of fat and the trimmings of the pheasant, season it with pepper, 
broth, and reduced wine, shape it into croquettes or spoon dumplings, and poach it in hydrogarum, which is water seasoned with garum, which we talked about in episode 40 of What's in Your Pantry. And this garum is actually a precursor to a pretty familiar seasoning sauce that most of us used. Now, this recipe really was more like a boiled dumpling, more like the dumplings that you see on chicken and dumplings. The first filled dumpling recipe is from a cookery book called The Form of Curry, which we also talked about in our cookbook episode. And the method is much more in line with what our good doctor would have done. Ingredients being put inside of dough, cooked, and then served. And I think that the thing that I really love about this legend specifically is that it speaks to the purpose of my view of food. It holds within it the history of a region. But more than that, it represents the love and care and hope. It's about nourishing the soul as much as it is about nourishing the body. Now, gyoza is just one of the many dumplings that have been created across cultures. Each of them speaks to the region, the culture, and the religions in the area in which they were developed. They're filled with symbolism, history, and deliciousness, and I can't wait to talk more about some of these other cultural dumplings. But Kim, what's your experience with dumplings, especially from Asia? Oh, man. So you asked this question of our friends in our Facebook community page, Mm -hmm. and we're going to remind you of that page name at the end of the episode, like we always do. But the question was great. It was a great one to ask, which is, When you think about dumplings, what comes to mind? For me, hands down, time and again, it's shumai. I was really excited to have this opportunity to explore, look into shumai. And of course, for me, that started off with a reflection about the first time I ate it. So I remember my very first visit to Los Angeles's Chinatown. It's the early 80s. My mom and I had recently returned to the West Coast, actually after living in North Carolina for three years. So this is a whole different vibe going on now. Mm. We were meeting up with family friends for dim sum, which I had never had before. And to me, Chinatown was an utter wonderland, a riot Mm. of color, a feast for the senses, bold colors, sinuous decorations of flowers and dragons and the bustle of people shopping. And I especially remember being alarmed, but also fascinated by the sight of roasted pressed ducks in windows of cafes and restaurants and groceries as we walked to the restaurant. To me, this was a brand new world. And I was about to discover a brand new world of flavor as well. So as someone who finds food and eating to be generally a very joyful experience, I loved and still love what I call the game of dim sum. You've got waves of ladies approaching your table with steam damp bamboo baskets filled with translucent glutinous morsels. And I just want to try them all. But as inexperienced as I was with the cuisine, what I loved was that it was this one beautiful bite, a flash of a moment to savor before it was gone. But all I ever had to do was just reach out with my chopsticks and have another dumpling and all that pleasure returned. Of all the dumplings traditionally served in dim sum, my hands down favorite, like I could eat plates of this and be super happy. That dish is shumai. There are a lot of variations of spellings to this word that I may or may not have 
slight variances in pronunciation. I know the dish is called shumai in Japanese, and that's S-H-U-M-A-I. It's also called sumai in Chinese. That's S-I-U-M-A-I. Whatever you call it, it's a steamed dumpling that when dipped into some soy sauce, offers my palate a near complete total taste sensation. That sweet, salty, sour, super umami, all in one bite. It's the best flavor I can think of. And so when we first decided to do a survey of dumplings around the world, I knew that this was the dish I wanted to explore. Because even though I love to eat shumai, I know absolutely nothing about its origins. So this is my opportunity to learn and to share what I've learned with you. So shumai was popularized in Cantonese cuisine, and that's specifically from the Gangzhou province of southern mainland China, as a snack item served in tea houses in a set of six or eight. These are auspicious or lucky numbers in Chinese numerology. Its origin as a tea house snack may actually be its name origin as well. One reference I saw suggested that siumai means cook and sell in the Cantonese dialect. I'm hoping that somebody can maybe help us out with the veracity of that claim. But it was meant to be a dish that you would eat along with the tea that you drank. And that together, those taste sensations would be a complete taste package. Between the 17th and 19th centuries, virtually all foreign trade done with China was limited to this province. And so it was to this area that exports of tea, silk, ginger, and more were brought in order to be traded with British traders and so on and so forth. And of course, the people bringing these goods brought their food traditions too, which makes sense for why this dish ended up being somewhat centralized in this province, although it may not have originated in that province. This also gave rise to a lot of interesting variations that resulted from regional preferences or food traditions, taboos about what you eat and what you don't eat, what's good for you, what's not good for you. And that's something that actually we saw, too, when we talked about all the fish stew variations between Italian, French and Greek cultures, these communities that mm -hmm. lived and worked and survived from the fish of the Mediterranean. So it's interesting how, even though they're very different dishes, there's still that nuance to it about, oh, this one has potatoes, this one doesn't, or exactly people do what they must to survive. The iconic Cantonese shumai is typically composed of ground pork, small whole or ground shrimp, Chinese black mushrooms like shiitake, green onion, ginger, and then seasoned with shaoxing, rice wine, soy sauce, sesame oil, and stock. Its wrapper is made from thin sheets of lye water dough. And this is the same dough typically used to make a food market style ramen noodles. And it gives that a characteristic light yellow color. Now, the hohat shumai from Inner Mongolia is made from chopped or minced mutton seasoned heavily with scallion and ginger and wrapped in a very thin unleavened dough and pleated as a parcel with a small neck and a flower blossom top. And this version is typically served with vinegar and tea to balance out the rich umami from the filling. So you have something a little bit more stringent to help everything balance out. Similarly, the Uyghur people from Xinjiang in northwest China have two dumpling varieties. They have a northern version consisting of mutton or beef along with green onion and radish and a southern version that uses glutinous rice with smaller amounts of mutton or beef. That's really important is that you get that flavor, but not so much that you have the meat. And dumpling shape differentiates the so-called chrysanthemum shaomai from Changsha, Hunan province, as its opening resembles a chrysanthemum flower petal shape. 
And this dumpling is composed of glutinous rice, pork hash, shrimp, shiitake mushrooms, bamboo shoots, and onion, and is notably spicy with black pepper. What I love is that these are all shumai, but they all have their slight differences, the regional flavors, something that brings a little extra to the dish, and yet they are all recognizable as shumai. Thanks, of course, to the cultural diaspora of East Asia, versions of shumai are also found in Japan, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Vietnam, and more, I'm sure. And immigration from East Asia to the United States, of course, brought a fair amount of Chinese food to the West Coast, but this was often also centralized into distinct Chinatown-style districts in metropolitan cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, and of course, Vancouver in British Columbia. And as we know, some of these food traditions further developed and adapted into what we now know as Chinese American cuisine. And that is in itself a fascinating cultural evolution. But at its heart, shumai, along with three other dishes from China, hargao, char shu bao, and egg tarts, all form a collection of staple dishes known as the Four Heavenly Kings. You probably would never find any restaurant that is definitively serving dumplings that would only offer shumai. The rest are going to be available as well. I just love the four heavenly kings. <laughs> yeah, I like it when food has a title to it. So I did want to talk a little bit more about gyoza. And this is, a, of course, a little bit different than what you were talking about in the beginning. So they're kind of known as the Japanese potsticker. That's what I always heard about growing up. And they can be steamed, but I have most often seen them served pan fried, which actually ends up blending a different textural element to the dish as opposed to the, mm -hmm. the soft mouthed steamed dumplings. They are once again Chinese in origin, but their popularity in other Asian countries and particularly Japan. And I did also see the story of Zhang Jing. I butchered that. Say it for me one more time, Blay. The story Zhang of Zhang Jing. I think it was I think you're pretty close. Okay. Yes. Our legendary physician. Yes. yes. What I loved about this idea was that because a lot of the medicines we're talking about, herbal remedies that also double as spices and herbs and things that would be flavorful and pungent and sometimes pleasantly so and maybe sometimes not so pleasantly so. But food as medicine, as you were mentioning at the beginning, Leigh, we've talked about this a lot. The idea mm -hmm. that you could, through nutrition, correct some kind of imbalance. Now, frostbite obviously is more of an environmental condition we know now than it is a nutritional condition. But I can imagine his patients eating this food, feeling this sort of sense of warmth spreading through their body and certainly to the tips of their ears and feeling some warmth and feeling some relief from that and having the belief that was changing the condition that they were suffering from. So this yeah. is definitely something we talked about, I believe, in our aphrodisiac food episode about mm -hmm. Ayurveda food traditions and the right. idea that you could balance your gut by eating certain things. So to me, this story may be true, may not be, but I feel like there's enough truth to it that I'm totally willing to be on board with this. At any rate, it was Japanese soldiers who served in northeastern China in World War II who are allegedly responsible for bringing gyoza to Japan much like American GIs cemented the mm. popularity of pizza in the United States after World War II. The most common gyoza recipe, specifically talking about that ingot-shaped dumpling, calls for a filling of minced pork, cabbage, Asian chives, sesame oil, garlic, and ginger wrapped in a very thin dough skin. 
And unlike shumai, gyoza are shaped like gold ingots with a wavy edge folding. And in this case, in Japan, they are served as an accompaniment to ramen, which ironically is another Chinese food tradition that was made popular in Japan. Now, I remember when Trader Joe's first started offering bags of individually frozen gyoza that could be at home fried, baked, or microwaved. And for me, this was like a go-to after-school snack all through high school. What I love is that the dumplings found their way from the other side of the world to my home freezer in Southern California. There's something that's really remarkable about how food travels. We've talked about this explicitly at length before, but... It's just amazing to me. Do you actually have a favorite Asian dumpling? I think probably gyozas would probably be my favorite because they were the first things that I was introduced to as an Asian dumpling. It just has that memory behind it about being, like you said, introduced to this new type of food. We didn't have that growing up. The gal that we're staying with right now, we had this conversation. We didn't even have pizza here. So when the pizza hut arrived, that was a big deal. So to be introduced to these new flavors and shapes of food was just really amazing. Yeah. I'm also thinking, gosh, is there a dumpling I wouldn't eat? And the answer is no. And there's something about its portability too. And I did not explicitly pull out Consider the Fork for this. But I am remembering that B. Wilson has this really great point about, you know, the idea of forks and things. That's new technology for us to eat food. Right. Mm-hmm. And so dumplings, the fact that you had this bite encased in dough, it's actually not that different from when we were talking in our dough episode about like, the idea of every culture has a flatbread filled with something because you could pick it up and you could just hold it. You didn't need additional equipment. The same is actually true of a dumpling. It's self-contained. You can use chopsticks, you can use a toothpick, you can use a fork, but you can use your fingers, the original, the original utensil, and just pop that sucker in your mouth and enjoy the perfect bite. I think that is such a great description of what a dumpling is. It is the perfect bite. Yeah, I'm, of course, starving. It's unfortunately perhaps a little late in the day to go for dim sum, so I'm going to have to make some plans with friends. But you know what? A great reason to actually get together and say... Hey, I was thinking about dumplings. I'd like to have some. I'd like to have some with my friends. So I wish you and I could be sharing some dumplings together. Me too. But we can dream. We can dream. (laughs) And we will get back there. We will schedule a dim sum date. Yes. The other thing about a dumpling is that there's the communal component to it. And I do remember we had a really great conversation a couple years ago with a local cook who taught us a lot about Chinese dumplings and about Mm -hmm. her ritual and her experience and her memories of making dumplings with her family. I love that concept of the community. And I think that there are a lot of dumplings outside of even Asian dumplings because it's such a labor intensive type of project that many hands make light work and you get to catch up on what's going on in everybody's lives. And it's a time when you just sit together and create and remember. Yeah. Yeah. And catch up. the yeah. And not just the little news of the day, but the bigger mm. things too. It marks time, especially if you're preparing them for a celebration or a feast. It can mark, hey, it's been a year since we sat together and made dumplings for New Year. And what has changed in that year? It's a time of reflection. Yeah. I love those moments. 
Don't forget to listen to episode 47 from Starter to Finish, Dough Does It All, for a look at the foundation of the dumplings that we talked about today. And episode 45, Cookbooks, Guardians of Culture and Cuisine, looks a little bit deeper into the two cookery books that contain the oldest documented dumpling recipes. And don't forget about episode 39, Fisherman's Stew, where we talk about the various fish stews and soups and chowders from around the world. And episode 40, where we talk about garum and see if you can remember what garum is a precursor to. And blast from the past, episode 11 on aphrodisiac foods is where we really first start talking about food as medicine and the idea that what you eat actually affects who you are. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at As We Eat, and please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. This is where we ask questions of our audience and friends about different ideas or their memories, recollections, and we have an open question right now about what kind of dumpling do you think about when you think about dumplings? And so you don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you could spare a couple of minutes to rate the podcast on Apple Podcast or Spotify, we would so appreciate it. This really helps those crazy content robots know that you enjoy the show and hopefully they'll do their robot thing and recommend it to other food enthusiasts. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack. and We would be really honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. You're not going to want to miss any of the content that we put out there. It's pretty good. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, my favorite discovery explorations, and more. There are several subscription tiers. We're sure you're going to find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research and a dash of humor.